0: Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What happens when you combine a thousands year old contemplative tradition with exponentially changing technology and an increasingly global and interconnected world? Since 2007, Buddhist Geeks has been striving to come up with answers to this question. And we've only just begun. Over the years, we've recorded hundreds of talks and conversations on the development of Buddhism in the 21st century. These recordings, in the form of our weekly podcast, are downloaded over a million times each year, accounting for several million total downloads. If you've been positively impacted by Buddhist Geeks, We ask that you consider becoming a monthly micro-patron. As little as $2 a month helps us reach important milestones related to the production of the weekly podcast. From scheduling guests to crafting thoughtful questions to recording, editing, and publishing the finished episode, your support enables us to take the time we need to create something worth listening to. Being a patron is about supporting those things that are most important to you that you feel have the potential to change the world for the better. Come put your money where your heart is. Patreon.com slash Buddhist Geeks.
1: Okay, wow, it's happening. Here we are. (laughs) Lots of planning, lots of thinking. So I'm going to tell you a story today about... uh, a young artist who was struggling in New York to make it in the gallery scene. And um, I'm going to pick uh, two or three artworks that were sort of key in that process, uh, looking for sort of commercial success and then uh, eventually finding something much broader and hopefully sharing that with you. How many of you uh, uh, do something creative? I'm, I'm really curious. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> but, you'll, but you'll tune into it. Uh, there's just some kind of natural affinity, I think, between um, openness, that openness and mindfulness and creative practice. So I don't have really any um, uh, Buddhist uh, lineage, but I'll point to a lineage in the art world <laughs> where I learned um, to make work. It goes back to uh, Marcel Duchamp in the early uh, 1900s and through the Bauhaus where there were many analytical thinkers. This is a work from 1969 from an artist named Saul LeWitt. And it was the peak of what's called conceptual art. And I I thought there was some sort of association between working with your mind to create art and working with your mind to find more openness. So Saul LeWitt took uh, vertical, horizontal, and diagonal lines and did all the combinations of them. A Very simple system repeated the system and created this work in this sort of grid format. Also, 1969 was the rising of cybernetics. It was a big time for IBM and the Apollo program when um, computers were becoming part of the cultural dialogue. Well, computers are the whole thing now, taken over. So um, this was my experience in 1984 to see these little pictures. And I loved these little pictures. I loved these little pictures. And I loved that little machine that made those pictures. And uh, I really liked the process of conceptual art, that I could come up with a... I didn't have to be an artist that saw something and rendered well, which I didn't do very well. I could be an artist that used this equipment to open up and explore new worlds. So down here is the Photoshop icon. You can see if you blow it up, it's broken up into these little dots, these little pixels. And the icons were 32 pixels by 32 pixels by black and white. So that seemed like a real simple format. And I thought, well, instead of deciding on a picture and then rendering it out, what I would do is I would write a program that would just rearrange all these little black and white squares in all these different ways. And I would see the entire catalog of all the icons possible. So um, I made a project called Every Icon. Yeah, we'll put it up live if we can. There it is. So it's still running. There it is on my website. It's possible to go see it. It starts in the upper left-hand corner. <laughs> Some people already got the joke. The upper left-hand corner, it starts with a blank grid. It shows you about 100 per second. And it rearranges all combinations of black and white squares. And so, just in a matter of time, you'll be able to see all the icons that are possible. <laughs> After a couple of days, I thought it wasn't working. <laughs> to do the first line at this, uh, at this uh, speed takes about three months. And to show all the possible combinations of the first two lines at this speed takes about 500 million years. <laughs> this was like the nuclear power of, uh, of images. So many possible images in the t- this tiny space of the icon. You know, this was the very first time I sort of touched that vastness, that, that sort of unimaginable set of possibilities that was... You know all possible artworks. So to uh, to echo uh, that that vow, you know there, there there are unlimited images. I vow to see them all. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody at that time told me, oh, what you've done is you've created the visualization of a kalpa. Now, I didn't know what a kalpa was. You might know. There's a, a in the Zen tradition. It's a, there's many different stories of it, but imagine a mountain made of stone and a monk comes out with a silk rag once a year and wipes the mountain. And when the mountain is gone, that's a culpa. So there are these unimaginable vastness that you encounter when you open up your mind and sort of see into it. So um, after I'd done every picture, what was there left to do? <laughs> so what What it forced me into was to recognize that anything I bring forward, anything I manifest forward in the world from the complete unknown had some decision on my part. It it reflected me. There was no way to escape that. So I decided what I would do is I would try to write an artificial intelligence software that would be creative. I would do the AI one better. It would be an artist AI. And so I went through a lot of the um, AI techniques of the time, Uh, This was uh, emergent behavior here on the left and a project called CPU. And over here, A-Life, which is itself a technique which uses genetic algorithms and fitness functions and choices. And every piece of software I wrote was not the technical solution to a problem. It was really more like a piece of creative writing. It was me making decisions about what these colors should be, what the shape should be, how the screen should be laid out whether there's a grid in the middle, whether it's in circles, all these decisions. So I couldn't escape myself in these decisions. And I couldn't make the set of rules that I was writing for the software through these uh, A-Life techniques do anything but really what they were programmed to do. So what was next? What was next was that I developed an introspective technique strictly to study the rules that I had unspoken for making the drawing, Because if I could solve this AI, it would really sell well. It would be really great work. So unknowing of any um, tradition of introspection, what I did was I sat down at a drawing table and I standardized into these cards. No no reason, but the size paper I had cut up well into this size at the time, so I've stuck with it. And I've laid out on the table over here, which I'll keep up for... um, I'll leave that up through, through lunch so you can see the, some, of the, some of the daily drawings. And what I did was I sat down, and I just had no idea what I would draw. I sat down with a blank card, and I waited. And just whatever started to arise, whatever movement started to arise, I would draw. And everybody's kind of done this with doodling. You let a mark go, and then you think, well, maybe it should go this way, and then, hmm, over that way. And I tried to observe, self-observe, what would happen if I did that thinking analytically that what would happen is i'd get the rules i'd find the source of my own creativity like the source of the nile i'd travel upstream and i'd figure out how it was i was coming up with all this stuff well it doesn't go back to a single point i can tell you that (laughs) <laughs> what happened was that it broadened out and it broadened out bigger than, uh, bigger than art, it broadened out into my whole life. And, it, and from 1999 uh, to now, it's been a daily practice for me to sit and draw and to allow. And never in all that time of some 5,000 cards now, something like that, has there been any repeats or anything uh, often like anything. Uh, Sometime in 2008, and I'll talk about that transition time in a second, around 2008 I started a site called iClock.com where uh, I decided it would be important not only to uh, do the work but to share it. And so I put up a drawing every day and often some writing. Some uh, people I know uh, who've had similar experiences to mine, this kind of opening experiences... Um, do it through journaling. They also, uh, some people sit and write every day in a kind of open way and just write whatever happens, which is a great practice. And so also on iClock, I started uh, doing some of that. So some of the drawings have writing with them. And I'll read you a couple of pieces in a second. Just check my time. Okay, we're good. Uh, So iClock.com became a way to show them and display them. And one idea I had, after I realized that it was not going to be an artificial intelligence creative software, but something else was going on, how do I decide then which ones to look at? How do I decide which ones to bring forward? Because I wanted the source of my work to be this kind of um, self-reflection rather than uh, an analytical conceptual art style. What I did was I started to look at what was persistent. So maybe not every day the same, but maybe over the course of weeks or the course of months, some of the drawings uh, became persistent. And in this case, I called them cycle drawings. I didn't really... I mean, I make up stories. Everyone makes up stories. And part of the writing and the journaling process was to make up the story. And people would say, well, you're just making it up. And I'd say, well, yes, I'm, I'm just making it up. But what is it I'm making up? <laughs> What's the story I'm telling? So I made these stories about the cycles. And I try to get a good story going. Because, you know, when you're showing your art, you have to give a little story, show collectors that it's about something. So um, I made some stories up. And, I, okay, these were uh, my daily cycles. Uh, we go through a cycle every day. Uh, we go through emotional cycles. I came up with all kinds of stories. And... Uh, and um, I even got into, like, I'm going to do some academic research so I could put footnotes in, and I found Carl Jung That was a, at that time. And he talked a lot about symbols, and I thought, well, maybe they're symbols. And he even wrote a book called Mandala Symbology, where he allowed patients to make drawings in uh, therapy, and they often came up with cycles like this. So things started to get a little freaky. And also they came up with serpentine lines, and I was coming up with these rivers, and I was explaining these as streams of consciousness or something like that. I, I'm sure I had a good story at the time about it. <laughs> uh, he talked about totality symbols. That was another term that he used. Totality symbols. So how is this a total? This is a total. But I was very focused on the squares going square to square. This would be a, a moment in time, and the next moment in time. This is a more calm one. This is a more turbulent one. So, around 2008, the change came, and. Um, i am just put this up from Wikipedia. This is a, this is a, a classic example of what's called a figure-ground reversal. And actually, I've heard that term used this, uh, this, uh, during this conference several times. Uh, and so, it, is it a vase or is it two faces? That's the va- vase or faces. Well, it's both and it's neither. It's the, both at the same time. And even I found uh, in researching this, I, and I had no idea that the talk was out there, but Shinzen Young, who's no stranger to the Buddhist geeks, uh, wrote about the figure ground in terms of his um, practice, uh, noting, uh, noting practice. Uh, when you're noting vanishings, he says, you become the nothing. You're the thing you're noting, the ground. You unbecome thoughts and body sensations. So I wish I'd have had that uh, teaching uh, back at the time. But there's this re- reversal from the ground that you're, uh, that surrounds you to the idea of yourself. And um, so what happened for me around uh, September uh, 2009 was that I made this, uh, this is the the day of the transition that it took place, the 13th uh, uh, of September 2009. I made the image on the left and this is what I wrote. I was in the midst of this analytical storytelling going on and I wrote uh, the cycle, because I was calling these still cycle drawings. The cycle is becoming my most persistent image. Layers of meaning keep occurring to me My most basic readings of the cycle symbol are that it represents one or more of the following, colon. A recurring series of moments, an array of phylogons, a looping thought, unconscious self-reflection, thoughts protecting an inner meaning, an awake mind, an imperfect circle, or a broken mandala. So it was kind of brainstorming. What could this symbol mean? What could it be? And then overnight, the thing that occurred to me was Thoughts protecting an inner meaning. What could be occurring was not the whole minutia of this uh, energy and symbol and line and color that was surrounded, but it was the thing in the center that was being protected. And I saw for the first time the next day this profile appear. But the profile wasn't the stuff I was drawing. It was the stuff that I wasn't drawing. The no-self became apparent. And I wrote, the confluence of fragmented thought streams become a flood of ideas. So it occurs to me that all of the things in my life, the moments, the way I identify myself, my sort of conscious mind that's thinking, is all the surrounding for the thing that's in the center, here, represented by this, uh, this profile, this no-self. So, of course, I thought I'd thought of something that no one had ever thought of before. LAUGHTER I'd made this amazing discovery out in the art world here and I started to make them bigger. So here's a, here's a no-self portrait that was taken then from the five by six card and it was cut with a CNC machine and coated with a formica and made very uh, nice for the gallery. And here it is down in the gallery. There were three uh, shown as a triptych, three no-self portraits. And in, the, in all these cases, the surrounding part is material, is wood and color and texture and surface and the center is open, there's a hole there in the material. Uh, so, so that the thing really is nothing. So onward. So that was, so first it was every icon, very analytical, the mind, and then it was the no self portrait and the surrounding, so the no mind. And so then what happens? Uh, as we heard a little bit yesterday, it all sort of comes in balance, comes in a union of opposites. And this is the persistence that I'm getting today. And you'll see a lot of examples over there. And I actually also offer you the opportunity to share readings as well, because I think I haven't yet maybe made that transition in this work, although it's sort of becoming more and more apparent. Uh, This uh, this was the drawing from one day. And I started to see that what started in the frame, this this I would say is like my context in which I'm setting up my expectations, how I see myself, how I see my life, something starts, and then slowly it grows to a point where it exceeds the bounds of that frame. So uh, by this time, I had um, gone from that no-self in search of uh, teachings and found that there were, in fact, these teachings and that this uh, wisdom had come up spontaneously, but there were quicker ways to get it. So, I mean, if you look at, say... uh, uh, mastering core teachings of the Buddha, I would say that that's like the superhighway, direct path kind of thing. I feel like I bushwhacked up the back of the mindfulness mountain on some <laughs> crooked trail. <laughs> but, you know, here I am out of the brush. And so, I, so by this time I had gotten more teachings and I'd begun to practice and sit. And, uh, and I think uh, I was starting to feel that uh, the context in which and the identities in which I held my life, I was sort of breaching. This was kind of what was coming up in the drawing for me. And uh, just to show you, if you're geeky, a little bit about the process. So I take the drawing, and uh, here is Adobe Illustrator. I scan it, and I outline an illustrator. And, of course, all these parts of the process have their own interesting twists and turns and additions. Here's the software called Rhinoceros, so we call it Rhino, where the flat drawing is... Uh, Brought out in 3D. And then here, this piece is um, six feet by five feet uh, in size. And uh, it's carved on a CNC machine, which is a great big uh, machine that holds a router bit. And it goes back and forth like a, a printer, but it has a, a Z dimension, so it goes up and down. So I use a material called HDU and I carve it, then I paint it. And, uh, and that's how I make these kind of sculptural works. Oh, so these are some of the sketches for what I'm calling, I've been calling the expansion series. And I began to read them. Uh, I began to read them broadly, more broadly. And I didn't even, in the beginning, read them uh, in relation to my own uh, practice. I actually started thinking about them uh, in terms of um, expansion of industrial society. It was kind of a great concern, uh, environmental concern of mine, that we're using up too much of what we've got. And in some ways, as a species, we've exceeded the bounds of the frame that we have. If the Earth and our resources are the frame that we live in. Uh, this is signaling to me that we're coming to the limits and the bounds of the frame. Uh, and and uh, there's, uh, there's many other readings. And uh, it took about two or three months before I started to read it the other way. So it was, in the beginning, it was a little bit alarming, like, oh, I'm signaling to myself that we're exceeding uh, resource bounds. But on the other hand, it can also be seen as a creative thing. So if you start on the right and read to the left, here's the chaos and the practice of Manifesting the practice of making art is taking from that vastness that was every icon, all possibilities, and bringing it down into a single point. Uh, and there was another reading I got this, uh, this, uh, during this conference. I didn't want to say this weekend, but it started on Thursday. <laughs> this weekend uh, in the meditations that, okay, on one hand, you have... Um, concentration practice, you have this kind of uh, narrowing to a single point in practice, and there is a practice where you try to get down to a single point. And on the other hand, and the other end of the extreme, you have this openness, this vast openness. So your, your uh, bare awareness, I think, would be a way to say it. So it might be the balance of those two, uh, concentration practice and and, and uh, insight practice together. So this is the piece that, that has come out. It's a 16 feet by 9 feet tall, uh, and it has... Um, This charcoal line on it, I'll show you another one. That's me in the middle of the polar vortex last winter standing next to it. Uh, But it'll give you an idea of the scale. And on here is uh, this kind of looping line. So uh, how did contemplative practice, this is the other uh, piece to uh, point out in this, how did contemplative practice now a regular part of my studio practice add to or converge with the uh, creative practice? Well, I was talking to Vince, and he was saying, um, you should just do more sitting. You should do sitting and do concentration practice, because when you look at the card practice, it's really an inside practice. It's really watching your own thoughts come up and dealing with them. So what would just sitting and following the breath do? Uh, so uh, over time, I kind of got where I could uh, observe the breath coming in and out. Of course, then when, they, when you first get that instruction, you're like... <sighs> Took a long time. Then relax. Okay, don't, don't breathe yourself. Let yourself breathe and observe your breath. Okay, so I started to observe my breath. This was like uh, if I was a runner and I would say, I'm a runner, I don't need to go to the gym and do leg curls. But then you actually did go to the gym and did them and you got back out on the track, you'd be like, hey, I've got some greater strength. So when I went back to the drawing after kind of learning carefully to allow the breathing to occur, it turned out I had a lot of strength in allowing the drawing to come up. So I was no longer struggling with whether or not I was influencing the drawing, how much am I influencing the drawing. It was just a really natural way to open up and let the drawing come up. And the result of that over the summer... Uh, a year ago, summer of 2013, is that the, line, the heavy lines that characterize a lot of my work went away and the brush strokes just came out and the color came out. So it was the observable changes from different uh, views, different uh, meditative views, changed the kind of results of the drawing, which was interesting. And uh, I had this whole piece built. It was all surfaced. It was all primed. And uh, I had to put this charcoal line on last. That was just the way the process went. So you can imagine the fear of... Uh, approaching this piece and, and the, you basically have the moment, the one time to make, make it work. And that really was where that practice paid off because I could be this moment just like every moment in making the lines and being aware. And I think the success of that piece, the union of the kind of um, industrial and chaotic with the hand drawn and the softer lines together, I think it works r- well together and the lines are well understood and they're very clear. I think also because uh, the mindfulness that was applied uh, during the process. So that's the um, sort of transitions and where it's going. And I invite you to uh, come over and see the work there. And also, if you'd like to try it yourself, 2 30 uh, today, I brought a bunch of materials, uh, paper, pencils. And uh, if you uh, do drawing practice, I invite you to come and uh, share. And if you've never done drawing, even better, there's no expectation. So come and uh, try and see what, uh, what arises. So thank you. Thank you for your time.
0: After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, You're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.